Good morning. Today's reading is Romans 10, 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Thanks for reading that. Um, I, I can't wait to dig into this text. This is just going to be great. Let's open with a word of prayer, though. Uh, gracious Lord, um, you are the Lord of the whole earth. Um, and uh, Father, we're grateful that you extend your reign over all of humankind, humankind. And, and Lord, that you are extending your kingdom. And Lord, we look forward to that day when your kingdom comes and your will is done in earth as it is in heaven. And so Lord, um, I pray that you would be uh, working your miracles on a moment by moment basis uh, to lead the world to that point, uh, to Jesus' glorious return, to his reign, and then to the consummation of the age, the, the closing off of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Lord, I pray that we never put that hope out of our hearts, but Lord, that it would drive us on. And Lord, uh, we need that hope, especially now with uh, the pandemic that's going on. Lord, it looks like it's going to surge uh, again here in a little bit. Um, winter's coming. There's a flu season that'll be upon on top of the pandemic. And so, Lord, we just ache for that day when disease is done away with when the curse of the sin or the curse of the fall is broken and, um, and the, the world is as it should be. Um, until then, Lord, give us grace and, and thank you for the grace that you've given us in medical science. And we pray for the, um, the Pfizer vaccine, Lord, that that would be uh, proved to be effective and safe and, and um, a useful tool in, in battling this. And Father, in, in the meantime, pray for Nick Carlson as he is... Um, has COVID, Lord, as he was unable to breathe this morning, passed out and is now in the hospital. Father, I pray that uh, you would be with his doctors, giving him wisdom and clarity, helping them to understand what it is that uh, is best treatment for Nick and his condition. And Lord, we pray for his, his swift deliverance by your mercy and according to your perfect and right plan. And so Lord, um, as we now turn to your word to have our faith fed, to uh, cause us to grow in your grace. Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would shine on this page. Lord, that you would make my words attuned to what you're saying in your scriptures. And Lord, that it would um, help all of us to see and to treasure Christ more. We ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. Okay, so um, we're digging now into chapter 10. 
if you remember what I said was chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is explaining why Israel failed, what happened to them. Um, they didn't achieve the righteousness by faith, and how did they miss it? And so we're at the halfway point in here just about, and I think it kind of bears the question, why did Paul spend three chapters writing on this? I mean, um, it was Israel that it happened to. It was that first century. Since then, um, you know, things have changed quite a bit. And a bigger question is, why did the Holy Spirit inspire this for us to know? Why did he include this in his scripture? And um, I, there's a very solid reason for that, even though it seems distant because it's the Jewish people in the first century, they seem so far away. And uh, it seems like such a foreign problem to us. But uh, think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When we went through Exodus, I referred to 1 Corinthians 10 quite a bit. Um, but in it, Paul kind of recounts the, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And, and then he's, he's telling us of their faults. He says, for example, um, he wants us to make sure that we do not desire evil as they did, that um, we do not become idolaters, or idolaters as some of those did, that we not indulge in sexual morality as some of those did, that we must not put Christ to the test as some of those did, nor grumble as some of those did. So what he's saying is those problems that Israel faced are not so foreign to us at all. As a matter of fact, beginning in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let no one think he think, I'm sorry, therefore, let no one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what Paul is saying there is those Israelites are not so different from us. They, they're not so, you know, hugely removed that we wouldn't face the same temptations. So what Paul's writing in, in uh, Romans 10 is it almost seems like what he's saying is uh, we must not pursue a righteousness based on work as many of them are. Because there's a danger, even for a Christian, to, to lapse into that. So he's really holding up this example of Israel's failure to us that we may not do that. Just as he said in 1 Corinthians 10, he's saying now in, in this larger section. So it does matter um, that, that we not fall into that same trap. It, it's very easy for us to begin to focus on our own performance and let that eclipse. So that's what he's warning us about. So what we're looking at today is really, I, I would call it um, Christ, the end of the law for righteousness, for righteousness part two. Um, this really does go with what we preached last week, what we saw last week. Um, and it begins to answer the question. Um, remember, he said that, that Israel had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And therefore, they pursued the law as if it was by works rather than by faith. And they didn't even achieve the law. They didn't even get to the law, let alone the righteousness that they were pursuing. So what Paul is doing this week is he's going to help us to see what is it that Israel missed in their zeal? What is it that they didn't get? And what he's going to do is he's going to show us it from the law itself. So when we look through this section, verse 5 is going to talk briefly about righteousness based on law. That's, that's what that first portion is going to be about. Verses six through nine is going to talk about the righteousness based on faith. And he's going to point this out from the law. And then finally, in the last section, he's going to show how that righteousness extends to all. 
So let's take a look at this righteousness based on, on the law. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So what he's saying is, if you're going to pursue your righteousness based on law, based on performance, you must live by them. And what's implied by that is if you fail to live by them, you will die by them. There, there is no halfway with obeying the law. You either keep it perfectly or you fail miserably. Um, and we'll see that at, again. I'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. We'll see the, a little bit more. Um, the problem is, and what Paul has introduced us to is nobody keeps it. Nobody does it. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if you're going to pursue a righteousness based on law, you're going to fail. Paul's already established that. Galatians 3 verse 10 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So if that's where you're going for your righteousness, you're going to fail. Because if you miss one mark, if you miss one little point, you have violated all of them. And Paul's already established for us in, in chapter 3, that's the case. Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks, understands, no one seeks for God. So that's the righteousness based on works, guaranteed failure. Um, so what's the alternative? And that's what he said last week. That's what the Jews were pursuing, is when they looked at the law, they said, this law will be my righteousness. I will do these things, and that will establish my righteousness. And, and Paul himself was one of them. Before he became a Christian, that was what his approach was. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew all the laws, all the rules. And he looks at it honestly now and he says, that can't work. And what's surprising is where he goes with this next is he's going to show us from the very law itself that that was never the case. That was not the promise that they were supposed to be looking for. And so uh, verse six starts with, but the righteousness based on the law says. Now, what it says is uh, Paul then goes and he doesn't quote um, Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 11. Instead of quoting it, he interprets it for us. He, he, he's preaching on it. So like when I'm preaching on the text, I'm not using only the words in the text. I mean, that's reading, right? Um, Paul then looks at Deuteronomy 30 and he says, let me explain to you the righteousness based on faith from Deuteronomy 30. Now to do this, what I want to do is go back to Deuteronomy 30 and understand what Moses is saying. We'll get that squared away and then we'll come back and we'll say, now, how did Paul interpret that? How did Paul ex exegete that for us? And we'll understand it. So let's look at verse uh, chapter Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 11. Moses says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it down to us that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So that's, that's Paul's, or that's uh, what Moses is saying. Now, Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell sermon. He's about to die. They're about to cross over the Jordan, head into the promised land. And so he's telling them 
the story of their redemption again. He's reiterating the laws, and 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 this was really, I think, of Deuteronomy as as Moses's pastor's heart for his people, and so he's he's exhorting them. Now, when we talked about the righteousness righteousness under law, that if you do these things, you will live by them. That was from Moses' writing. That was from Leviticus chapter eighteen, verses four and five. Um, Leviticus 18, 4 and 5 says, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rule, my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Moses wrote that. Now what Moses is doing is he says here in, in chapter 30, here's the heart. Here's the, the message that I want you to hear. This commandment I command you today is not too hard for you. Keeping the law was extremely hard. It was burdensome. It was, it was very difficult to do. But he says that what keeping all of those little nitnoid rules and all those little commandments, that's not what I wanted you to get. The law has a purpose. It has a function, but it's not for your justification. So the commandment that I command you today, what I'm telling you to do today with that law is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not some foreign and ancient or faraway concept. He says, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven and bring it down to us that we may hear and do it. It's not some far off heavenly thing. You can't ascend to heaven. Nobody can ascend to heaven. That's the point. You can't, you don't have to go get it. What I'm telling you to do, my command to you is actually much closer than that. And then he goes on and he says, um, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Um, for ancient Israel, for the, the Israel that came out of Egypt, across the sea might as well have been on Pluto. They just, they were not sailors. And so this is saying it is not as far away from you in heaven above the earth, nor, up, you know, across the earth. It's not that far. Where does he say it is? Listen to what he says. He says, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So whatever Moses is telling them here, he's saying, it, it, you can do this. This is achievable. But what does he not say? Listen to what he doesn't say. He says, the word is very near you. He doesn't say it is on scrolls and tablets. He, he doesn't point to the, the scrolls that he's written and the Ten Commandments that he brought down from the mountain. He says, this word is very near you. He doesn't point to the law and say, there it is. Go do it. He says, but the word is very near you, but he doesn't say it is in your mind and in your hands. And if you understand the rules and you just do them, you got it. That's not the word that he said. What does he say? He, what does he say? He says, this word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So what Moses is telling them is, here's the rules. These are, these are the laws that God has set before you. As a matter of fact, earlier in chapter 30, he's just pronounced curses and blessings. This is what it'll be like if you don't do the law. But what he tells us in chapter 30 here in, in verse 11 is he brings it down. He says, now listen, what you have to do is not that far away. It is not that hard. You have to do something else. Now, I'm not sure if Moses fully understand, ex understood exactly what he was saying or what it meant at that time. Um, I'm not sure he could have. He didn't have the full revelation of it, but he knew that he was not justified by keeping those laws. He, he knew that what it was, it had something to do with a word in your heart and a word in your mouth, something that you said and you believed, something that you held on to, not something that you did. Somehow Israel missed that. So 
let's take a look at what Paul says. Now, Paul goes back and he looks at that. And, and instead of my sermon, let's hear Paul's sermon on Deuteronomy 30. And here's how Paul says it. Paul says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Now, notice that's not a direct quote. Um, that's not how Moses said it. Moses said, um, do not say, didn't say anything about in your heart. He says, you won't have to say who will ascend into heaven. Paul says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. So he's explaining, he's taking it, and he's bringing it to us. But then he puts in parentheses, in the ESV, it's in parentheses right after the quote. That is to bring Christ down. So do you see what Paul just did? He looked at what Moses had commanded them. He looked at what Moses had said they should do, what they should put in their heart and have on their lips. And he says what that meant was you don't have to go up into heaven and grab Christ and bring him down. Now, I believe that what he's talking about there, what Paul is referring to, is not Jesus' second coming, but the incarnation. And I'll explain that in a, in a verse or two. So what he's saying is you don't have to go up to heaven and grab Christ and bring him down. That wasn't what Moses was telling you. And then he goes on and he says, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, here's the problem, because Moses didn't say anything about an abyss. And I looked in the, the, Greek, New or the Greek Old Testament and the Hebrew, and it doesn't say abyss in either one. It talks about the sea. So why does Paul interpret the sea as the abyss? Um, I think what we have to do is understand the Hebrew way of interpreting and understanding the sea. The sea was terrifying to the Jews. Um, they didn't sail very far from shore. They were not known for their navy. Um, when they looked to the sea, they saw chaos and, and fear in it. it. It had this beast called Leviathan who was scaly and would swallow up ships and destroy people. It had this beast called Rahab who was just fearful. It, it, dwelling in the sea was uh, Behemoth who would, who would destroy people who got on the sea. So when they looked to the sea, if they, if they said, you know what, the, the, the word that Moses is giving us is not on this shore, but it's on the other shore across the Mediterranean, they were, they were hopeless. It might as well, like I said, been on Pluto. They, they were not going to get there. So when Paul looks at that, he's looking at this a couple of thousand years later, and he's not talking to Hebrews who don't sail. He's talking to the church. And what happens with the church? Well, Paul is on a missionary journey when he writes this. He's been sailing all over the Mediterranean. So the sea is not that foreboding, impossible thing to carry, uh, to traverse to the audience Paul is writing to. So I think what he's doing is he's looking to that idea of the sea and saying, well, well what's comparable? And, and how can I explain that in a way that, that honors Jesus and shows what's going on? And so he says, instead of going over the sea, because people are doing that, here's something that's equally impossible. You can't go down to the abyss. Now, when he talks about the abyss, what he's referring to is just a general sense or a general saying of the place where dead people go. Um, it's not a detailed, you know, um, going to hell or going to heaven or any of that. There's, there's a doctrine called the intermediate state that talks about after death, but before the resurrection, what happens? Um, Paul is just taking that as one big lump. He's saying, you don't have to say who will descend into the abyss um, to bring something up. That word that you're supposed to hold on to, who's going to bring that up? That, that's not possible. Nobody does that. But what he adds in parentheses is, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So he's, he's saying, look, you, you can't, you don't have to, to get this word, you don't have to go drag Christ out of the grave. Um, so consider those two things. Let's put those two things back together for a moment. 
don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to get Jesus and bring him to us so that he can save us. And don't say who will descend into the abyss so that Jesus will be raised for our justification. Instead, he says, what you have is you have something else going on. He's looking at the Old Testament. He's, he's looking at Moses' commands. And what he finds there is Jesus Christ. That what Paul is telling us as he interprets Deuteronomy 30 is what he, Moses was referring to was something that he didn't fully understand at the time, but it was God's promise. It was Jesus Christ. And so Paul exegetes that text. And what he finds in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Um, this is not something unique to Paul or something one-off. Uh, for example, in John chapter 5, Paul, uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You people go through the scriptures and you look for all the little rules and all the little details because you think in them you have eternal life. And here's the surprising part. He says, and they bear witness about me. So if you, Paul, Paul is saying it, Jesus is saying it. If you read the Old Testament correctly, what you will have is Jesus, not works. So Jesus goes on, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So this raises a, an, um, an important question. And this is really what I was thinking of when we were in Exodus, looking at the law, is I wanted to get a New Testament perspective on how do we as Christians look at the law? Well, what we do is we go to our New Testament and we listen to how Jesus handled the Old Testament and we listen to how the apostles interpreted the Old Testament and we read through and we say, that's how we're going to read the Old Testament. Because if you don't get it from Jesus and his apostles, who will you get that ability from or that, that way of doing it from? Who will teach you how to read the Old Testament? It should be Jesus and the apostles. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to say just as a way of warning so you don't get too carried away because you can get some really bizarre things if you do this wrong. First of all, if you say, I'm going to find Jesus in the Old Testament, and you come up with something that's brand new and dazzlingly brilliant, and nobody has ever said it before, it's probably heresy. It's probably wrong. Don't do it. Um, don't go there. You, you're not going to find something like that. Um, second of all, when you go there, you should go with a degree of caution. It's, it's important to start by saying, what is Moses saying? How did Moses interpret this? What did he mean by this? Before you go and impose Christ on it. Um, the third thing is, the Bible is not written with code words. It was written over a period of thousands of years by, I think, somewhere around 40 to 60 authors, depending on how you count it. And so when you look and you see a word used in one way in one text, it doesn't mean that that is now a, a special code word that will be used that way throughout all of scripture. Um, you have to read it in its context to understand what's going on. So be careful with that. And so, and then the final thing is, don't take, take your cues from the New Testament, don't invent things. So when you go and you look at the law, when you're reading through Leviticus um, in your year through the Bible plan, and you hit that spot, you go, oh, this is just, instead of trying to find Jesus in all the little bits and bobs and in the shape of the pomegranates or something like that, just step back and take a broader view and say, now, how does the New Testament help me understand that? And you can understand these things. You can see Jesus where he, he's pointing to us, because what Jesus said is, this is what the Old Testament is about, is about him. So um, Luke 24, we talked about that when we went through Luke. 
Luke is on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to the apostles, his disciples, and they don't get it. And so what, what Luke tells us is he says, starting with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything about him. So all of that was about Jesus. So that's, that's what Paul is doing for us here. But let's not lose the context of where this fits in. Paul's point, what he's discussing here is what did the Jews miss? What is it that they had a zeal for God for, but the knowledge that they lacked to make that zeal for God actually work? And what he's just shown us is he's pointed out something that Moses himself wrote in the law, pointing them to something beyond themselves, not their obedience, not their performance, not their works, but rather to a word that was beyond them, a word that all they had to do was hold it in their heart and speak it on their lips, not perform it. And that's what they missed. That is the zeal that they didn't have, that, or the knowledge that they didn't have um, with their zeal. So Paul continues. He's not done demonstrating this from the Old Covenant yet. He's, he's got more to show us. So then he goes on. He says, but what does it say? So this word that's not in heaven that you got to go get it or across the sea or in the abyss that you got to go get it, what does it say? He says this. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That's, that is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 30. Here's Paul's inspired in, in interpretation of it. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So what Paul has just said is what Moses was telling you, what Moses was telling the people to do is to put their hope in, to put their trust in. And then he says, it is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, it's the gospel. It's what we've been telling you all along. You will not be justified by works. You will be justified by a foreign righteousness, a righteousness of somebody else put on you. And so that's what Moses has, is saying, or that's what Paul is saying Moses was telling us. Is Moses was preaching the gospel. That, that is mind-blowing to, to understand how Paul worked through that text and shows you Jews, you missed it and you shouldn't have because Moses himself was telling you that. So that's the righteousness that's based on faith. It, it, notice that he, he uses the, the law to tell us righteousness is based on faith, not on works. You have to trust God that he will do these things. It's, it's not too hard for you. Um, obeying the law, that's too hard for you. Trusting in God to provide your righteousness, that's not too hard. You can do this. And that's what he wants us to hear. So now where he goes is he's going to take that. He's going to extend that righteousness to everybody. How does it come to the Gentiles? If it was contained in the law and the law alienated, excluded the Gentiles, then how does it extend to everybody? He keeps going. Listen to what he says. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, we've got to be careful here because you have to remember at this point, Paul is still exegeting Deuteronomy 30. So when he says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you're saved, he is not saying there are two things you must do in order to be justified or in order to be saved. You must believe and you must confess. So you could be saved without ever uttering a word. Um, he's, he's not trying to divide this up in a way that, that is saying you have these two functions you have to do to be saved. What he's doing is he's continuing to draw from Moses and pulling it in for us. And so he's going to continue this theme of heart and mouth. Um, but we have to be careful because when you go through the rest of the Bible, it doesn't say that you have to confess these specific words to be saved. He, he's saying you have to believe we're, what he's told us in the first half of his book, 
so far is you are justified by faith alone. Um, so just want to be clear on this. Let's not get the, the confess part too, um, too wrapped up. It, it, it's just his exegesis of, uh, of Deuteronomy. For with the heart one believes and is justified. This is what Paul has been saying all along. You are justified by faith alone. So the, the, the righteousness that's based on works will malfunction. It will fail. And it's not because there's anything wrong with the law. It's because there's something wrong with our heart. We will not do it. We will twist it. We will distort it. We will become proud. If we have any measure of success in doing it, we'll become proud and puffed up. And once we do that, we violated one part. We're guilty of the whole thing. So it, with the heart, one believes and is justified. You're, you're justified that righteousness comes to you by faith alone. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So what he's saying here is it's not the performance of the law. That would be zeal. You, you could have that zeal. That's what he had. That's what the Jews of his day had was a zeal for the law. But it never went beyond the head and the hands. It never got into the heart. It was never a love for God, a desire for God. It was never a pursuing after God. It was always something else. But now what we see clearly that Moses has been telling us and what we've been missing all along is if you believe you're justified, if you confess, you're saved. For the scriptures say, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is him going right back to chapter 9, verse 33, the end of, of chapter 9 where in that place he quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he ends with a Joel, uh, uh, he'll end this, this portion with a quote from Joel. In, in the Isaiah citation, he says, Behold, I am laying a, in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that he goes back to that thing, whoever believes in him, not, that includes Jew and Gentile. That's how the God, and then he says, um, verse 12, there is no distinction. This is his point. This is what he is saying, uh, the point that he's making. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, uh, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So uh, what I said was that I would under explain that so that we could see why that was um, uh, the incarnation. One of the things that he says is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. How did I miss that verse? Where did I put that? Um, I somehow blew past that. That's really important. Um, this one verse that Paul uses, uh, I must have cut it out of my text. Verse 9, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's verse 9. That is so important. That is so central to, G to Paul's argument here. It, it means something great. Um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's what I was talking about when I said this is the incarnation. So if you confess that Jesus is Lord, when you look at the Old Testament, when you look through your Old Testament Bible, you'll see Lord in a, uh, small caps, capital L, and then smaller version of cap letters, O-R-D. That is the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, God's divine name. And when the Jews saw it, in order to not take the Lord's name in vain, instead of saying it, they would say Adonai, the Lord. Um, I, I don't think that is taking the Lord's name in vain, if he puts it in his scriptures, 
uh, to say it because it's his name and, and he put it in the scripture. Point aside, if you read through the, the Old Testament, and, and I did this a couple of years ago, and every time I saw the Lord like that, I, I said in my, my mind, Yahweh. So I was kind of undoing what the Jews had done by seeing Yahweh and saying Adonai, I would see the Lord and say Yahweh. And when I got to the New Testament, I made the mistake of reading and I would see Jesus, the Lord, and I would see Jesus Adonai. And, and so that is what I think is going on here is, is Paul is saying, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, not just that he's, he's a magnificent ruler, but taking that old covenant, because remember, we've been in the Old Testament, bringing that idea forward. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, what Paul has just said, if you believe that God, the second person of the Trinity, came down and took on human nature, if you confess, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and that he and that God raised him from the dead. So that was the two things that that Paul had said earlier, that Moses had said earlier, in heaven where you can't get to beyond the sea or in the abyss to bring Jesus up. Um, the second part, if we understand the first part correctly, that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, then what he says next is really mind-blowing because it says, um, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Notice he doesn't say, and believe that he raised himself from the dead or uh, believe that he was raised from the dead passively by some unknown force. But Paul is very clear. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So what this is beginning to tip the hat to is the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus is Yahweh. He died and he went into the grave and God raised him from the dead. But we know there is only one God. So how could Yahweh have in the person of Jesus died and been in the grave and God raised him from the dead. Well, there must be two persons in God. There must be one God and two persons at least. Uh, we'll get to the Holy Spirit later, but I mean, that's what we're seeing right here. So what Paul is telling us in verse nine is this robust, this full sense of Christian theology is that if you believe this, you will be saved. Now, I want to be careful with this too, because when I first became a believer, um, I was reading through the book of Acts and um, I didn't have a whole bunch of theology going on. I just knew what I was reading was true, that Jesus was the Messiah, and, and it blew my mind. It was just like, this is the most amazing thing ever. It was about, I don't know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month later that I got a hold of a Catholic study Bible, and I was reading, and I remember seeing in a footnote, Jesus is God, and it blew my mind. I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. Now, before that point, did I believe that Jesus was Lord? Well, yeah, but I didn't understand all the nuance of it. It wasn't that I denied it. It was that I hadn't encountered it yet. And so once I encountered it, it was great news. So this is not like when you go out and evangelize, step one is, is uh, explain the Trinity. Um, what you have to believe is that Jesus died for us and that he makes us right with God. And then you build on that from there. So that theology is rich and it's super important. And Moses and, and Paul is pointing to Moses and saying Moses is teaching us. Um, that's the understanding of Moses. So I'm, I'm sorry, now we can get back to extending that righteousness for all. So he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's kind of taking verse 9 and exploding it and applying it and saying, look, that is not based on works. Your, your obedience to the law did not go up and grab Jesus from heaven and bring him down. Your obedience to the law didn't make that occur. Your obedience to the law did not raise Jesus from the dead. God did those things apart from your works. 
And so these are the things that you have to trust in to be saved because they're God's work, not yours. Then verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's going back to Isaiah 28, verse 12. Now there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. On all who call on him. So this, this promise of Moses, which was in a nest egg in the law, the egg is cracked open, the, the chick comes forward and is, is beautiful, and that chick is that gospel. All who call on him will be saved, Jew and Gentile. So the Jews who are refusing to call on him and are still saying, I'm going to pursue a righteousness based on law, they're missing it. They may have a desire for these things, but they're missing the promise. They're missing the glory of it. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's quoting Joel through 2, uh, verse 32. And not only is he quoting Joel, but he's actually quoting Peter, because Peter said that, used that same quote on Pentecost morning to announce the, the salvation that comes to all people through Jesus Christ. So everyone who believes in him, there is no distinction um, and this goes back to the beginning of, or not to the beginning, but to, to the earlier parts of our argument, Romans 9.30. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness based on faith. So those, those Gentiles who weren't after this got it because it's by faith alone. Verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness that did not succeed in reaching even that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was by works. So that was, that was where we are at now. Paul has taken that and he's exploded it. He's shown us all the meaning of it, how that comes to everybody. So now earlier, when we looked at verse five, righteousness by the law, I said that, that nobody can do that, that, that it's impossible. Nobody will keep the law, not perfectly. Um, that's only mostly true. Uh, the reality is there is one person in all of history who kept that perfectly and did it without mistake. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came from heaven, the son of God came from heaven, born of a woman, became incarnate, born under the law. So all that the law demanded was placed on Jesus, just as it was any other Jew. And so what happened is Jesus grew up under this law, and he never sinned. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus, born under the law, met the requirements of the law perfectly. He had no sin. Now, when Paul says in, in, in uh, Romans 3 that all fall short, that none seek after God, that he's not including Jesus in that. Jesus did that. He met that for us. And so when we talked earlier about the righteousness of God being available to us, that's where it comes from. So in one important sense, you are saved by works. You are saved by obedience to the law. You are saved by the righteousness that is by law. 
but it's not your righteousness. It can never be your righteousness. It is Jesus' righteousness. He was born into the law and yet knew no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He committed no sin. And so that's that righteousness of God that comes to us. And so do you see why the Jews missed it? When they're looking at the law and they're saying, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to keep these things. They either have to downplay their sin and say, well, it's not that bad. Or they have to take those things and make them attainable, make them doable. Um, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Got it. Um, I just won't say that word. That isn't what God meant by that. When you bear God's name, when it's on your shoulders, you take it in vain when you don't live according to who he is. I do not commit adultery. Never done it. I've, I've kept clean. I've, I've you know never done that. Jesus comes along in, in Matthew 5 and says, but if you look to a woman in order to sin, in order to lust after her, you're guilty of adultery. That was never, that was never the point of the law. Yet Jesus, when he comes, he does all of those things and he does them perfectly. And so that's what it means for us to have his righteousness applied to us. How does it get there? How does it come to us? Well, that's what Paul is going to talk about in the rest of chapter 10 is what we would use the word means, the, the, the vehicle by which that righteousness comes to us. And so that's where we'll go next week. Um, but for now, what we need to see is Israel pursued a righteousness based on works, and they never even got to the law. If, if we consider what Paul warned us about in 1 Corinthians 10, he's saying, don't fall into that same trap. There, there is no temptation that's befallen you that's not common to man. So he lists all these things that Israel did during the Exodus. But I mean, he could have picked up and said, and, and even Israel today, what they're tempted to do is not something that is beyond you. So be aware of it. Don't rely on your performance to be right with God. Rely on Jesus' performance. Look to him and say, Lord, I'm counting on his righteousness being sufficient for me. And then let that liberate you to pursue law based on, on faith, not on works. This is a beautiful expression of who you are. I want more of you. Therefore, I'm going to pursue after these things. Yes, I'm going to war against these sins that, that come up easily. But Lord, you've promised me in 1 Corinthians 10 that you will provide in a way of escape. You've made it possible for me to, to begin to live that way. You have not been content to just save me and leave me in a muddy state. You've washed me up. You're working to make me more like your son. That's, that's the promise. That's the hope. But if you're going to do it yourself, you're sunk. So, so that's our warning. That's what Paul is, is spending so much time on this for is don't even try it. Continually turn to Jesus Christ and pursue him. Seek him, seek his righteousness. And that's how you'll be justified. That's how you'll be saved. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, um, so often in popular culture, we hear Christians portrayed as hypocritical, as self-righteous, as judgmental. Um, and Lord, um, I don't believe that those portrayals are accurate. I don't think they're a, a good representation of who we are, but Lord, there's a sense of truth in them because we can be tempted in that direction and we can come across that way. And so Lord, I pray that by the power of your word, working in our hearts and minds, Lord, would you convince us to not trust in our own righteousness, but to look to those who are lacking righteousness and plead with them to come to Christ, because in him they will have all their righteousness. Um, so, Lord, help us to be the people that you're making us into. Help us to walk the way you've walked, 
Uh, help us to speak the way you speak. Help us to be your people. And Lord, may the, the warning of Israel ring in our ears that we never find self-righteousness. Lord, may we never lapse into a zeal for you apart from knowledge because it's dangerous. It can lead to bad places. Father, may your righteousness applied to us through the blood of Jesus Christ propel us to grace and to mercy to the world as it did your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.